This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it himself, themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have a repeat guest here. This is Suzanne Squires, who's back to tell us a spooky story for Halloween. And this is honestly like one of my favorite stories so i'm so happy you're telling it today suzanne how's it going what's going on great anthony and aren't you glad i'm not a repeat offender (laughs) i am just a repeat guest yes yeah yeah yes and i hope i tell the story uh as well as you would oh my gosh so you so suzanne as as some of you may remember was a fourth grade teacher for many many years and came out to the old pen and has been one of our prime educators here at the Old Pen. So if you've come in the last couple of years for a guided tour, you've probably gotten it from Suzanne. And if you still come, you'll probably get it from Suzanne. So yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. Yes, still I am. Here. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, Suzanne. Well, why don't we get started? Let's start with Mr. Samuel Hatton. Okay. All right. Inmate number 128, which Whoa. indicates that he was here quite a few years ago. All right. <laughs> When he was brought here, he was 25 years old, considered to be a pretty powerful guy as far as, you know, his build and whatnot. And on his intake papers, he indicated that he had a father that was living in Shoshone, Idaho. So no no indication of a mom, but a, a dad. So Sam's first brush with the law came in what was then Alturas County which now is Blaine County. So up in that Sun Valley, Ketchum, Haley area, he was actually considered to be a suspect in the murder of a very prominent person, a merchant by the name of Aaron Morris, living up in that area, who happened to be traveling one evening between Ketchum and Haley, and this is in 1884, and he was murdered. Why? Yeah. So, the town at this time, believe it or not, was able to put up about a $5,000 amount of money for a reward for the capture of the killer of this merchant that they probably thought a lot of. Yeah. So that's a lot of money back then, if you think about it. They really, really wanted someone to be tried and convicted of this murder. Definitely. So Samuel was one of their suspects who went on trial, but was actually acquitted. The jurors felt confident that he had committed this murder, but there was just not enough evidence. So Samuel is free. 
The reason he ended up here was actually a few months later, he is arrested for a charge of grand larceny. So he has robbed a till in a saloon, possibly. Huh. All right. And so he is tried and convicted and brought here, enters the prison on November 13th, 1885. So he's here and right away is described by guards, wardens, and other inmates as a pretty violent man. Mm. And basically spent a lot of time in solitary confinement for, you know, verbally abusing and physically abusing guards and other inmates. There was one digitized paper that we have in the warden's report. It was actually a warden's record where they listed inmates with bad behaviors. And Samuel was there many, (laughs) many times. Oh, boy. (laughs) So he was kind of feared by everyone and, you know, like I said, continually threatened other inmates and guards. And he actually attempted an escape in 1889, January of that month, but he was apprehended the very same day. So we've got him back and put in solitary confinement. But after entering the prison, there was an opportunity for an old partner of his to share a little story about Samuel. I'm not sure if the partner was here in prison or if it was someone that just spoke out outside knowing that he was here. But he shared a story that was published in the Idaho Statesman, and it was that uh, he and Sam were walking along the Wood River up in the Haley Ketchum area. And there was a sheep herder sitting on a rock, kind of off in the distance. And um, Hatton looked at this other man and said, hey, you know, I wonder how far that fellow would fall if I shot him. And he did. So, obviously, that was a case, and I don't know if anybody was looking for the, you know, the, the murderer, you know, sheep herders back then led a very kind of lonely life very isolated, maybe he didn't have a family, but there's really no record of whether or not that was ever, you know, brought forth to a sheriff and asked for any sort of, you know, help in finding the murder of that person. But it just indicates how cold-hearted he really was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no ruthless. conscience, very ruthless. Exactly, exactly. <sighs> so um, in 1892, after he'd been here about seven years, um, he applied for parole, and he was denied it, obviously, because of his behavior, his inability to have any self-control, and um, obviously needed maybe a little anger management class, right? So then that about set him off right there. And uh, so this is about seven years into, like I said, into his sentence. And he just kind of had enough. But he was then sent to solitary confinement, which at this point, um, he had attacked one of the barbers here on site, and he was put in his cell. So I guess rather than going to the dungeon, mm-hmm. the cell was his solitary confinement, and put on a diet of bread and water. Again, he's at this breaking point, obviously, seven years into a 14-year sentence. And uh, one morning, turnkey Howard French decides that he is going to go ahead along with another inmate who was like the cook. His name was Tex Huber. Tex Huber. Tex. Perfect, right? (laughs) And so Sam had been on uh, bread and water for quite a while, and so they were going to deliver his first real meal. Mm. So, um, And he's probably, I'm assuming, in the 1890 cell house, Mm -hmm. confined either on one of those floors up there. And it sounded like he was maybe up on the third floor. So Tex and turnkey French uh, arrive with a tray of food for him, and they 
enter his cell, and Hatton is just kind of sitting there hanging out, you know, writing a letter, and he was very verbally abusive to the guards, other inmates and wardens, like I had indicated, and they walked in with this probably a lovely plate of food. He hadn't had anything for, you know, seven days, and he refused to eat, and he just starts calling French every name in the book, and they decide, okay, he doesn't want to eat, so he and Tex pick up the tray and walk out of the cell. But they forgot a coffee cup. So once they're out of the cell house, or out of the cell, excuse me, and they're, it's all locked up, French realizes that he forgot the cup. So he goes back in and uh, goes to retrieve the cup, and Hatton just jumps on him. He's going to retaliate and take care of turnkey French, like he said he would. He strikes him several times, and at this point, um, you know, obviously French is trying to get away from him. Uh, and they're headed out of the cell, out the door, onto the, into the balcony area, you know. The, and he picks up French, and looks like he's going to try to throw him off the balcony from the third story. And meanwhile, French is yelling for Tex to come and help him, and he's off on the side, incredibly worried, confused. You know, he doesn't want to get involved in this, but yet he should help French. So he does then approach Hatton and tries to pull him off French. And so then Hatton goes after Tex. So French, you know, is like, oh my gosh, okay, I have time to kind of regroup here. And he looks over, I think he's probably trying to decide who he wants to go after more. Do I want turnkey or do I want uh, Tex? So he ends up leaving Tex and running back toward turnkey French. And as he's running towards him, there is a little knife from the tray that he sees on the floor and he attempts to pick it up in his haste to get to French. And French by this time knows that he's got to do something or this is you know, not going to end good for him. So that day, and maybe many days, he came to work with a Bowie knife, which we know that the guards were not supposed to have weapons unless they were a guard in the tower, but he had this Bowie knife, and probably for purpose, right? A reason, that he, and it was wonderful, because he then turns on Hatton, and he takes that Bowie knife, which is a, about a seven-inch blade, and sticks it into his stomach, and Samuel goes, oh, I'm cut, I'm cut. And he runs towards the stairs and down the hall there and leaving just this incredibly bloody trail. And it doesn't take him long to die. And there he is, dead from a cut to the stomach with a seven-inch bowie knife. Yeah. After seven just chaotic years of him causing issue and mayhem, it all ends with trail of blood, a brutal attack on a guard. Now, was there any retaliation towards turnkey French? It sounded like it was pretty much self-defense, which, if you think about it, it probably was. Mm -hmm. Now, whether he was reprimanded for having that knife, I don't know. But anyway, the autopsy that was performed said that the knife wound came close to the spine, under the ribs, cutting upward a little to the left, it's pretty graphic, piercing the kidney and the abdominal aorta. And it was then decided that he probably, it was pretty instant, his death, even though he was able to make it a few feet, you know, leaving this bloody trail. So I guess he didn't suffer much, <laughs> but 
look at all the other people that suffered because of him, right? right? Yeah. Again, you know, French said, you know, that Hatton had frequently threatened him. In an article, he was quoted as Hatton was, had said to him, I will slip up behind you someday and stick a knife into you. So then he knew he was going to be bringing him his breakfast, and so maybe having that knife, he just knew that he had to be prepared for anything. Yeah. I'm not much of a knife person. I didn't really know what a Bowie knife was I, uh-huh. when I looked it up and saw that it was, you know, a, a picture of it, and it was about a, you know, seven or eight-inch blade. Yeah. You know, it was kind of a survival knife, which in this case, it helped him survive, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was primarily used for, like, hunting, uh, you know, skinning an animal or, you know, gutting it, butchering it up, you know, once you've secured your catch. So anyway, I was like, okay, it's pretty intense. So anyway, uh, you know, and one of the other stories was that he had actually um, beat another inmate with a horseshoe. So, you know, everything that he did was, was incredibly brutal. It was noted, though, that prior to this incident, his mother, which was not mentioned, like I said, on those intake papers, but she had come and actually met with the warden and tried to secure a pardon for her son. But she was unsuccessful in that. And then supposedly when this poor heartbroken woman went to tell her son that she had tried and failed to secure a release or a pardon, that he just went off on her and cursed her and was just as vulgar as he was verbally to some of the other inmates and guards as he was to his mother that day. I mean, what a guy. What a guy. Yeah. And, you know, he listed his um, occupation as a painter, which you kind of have to think, hmm, was he an artistic painter? Uh Was he painting houses? (laughs) I mean, what was he doing? And, and, uh, why would he list that as an occupation, you know? So that was kind of an interesting little mm-hmm. twist when I was reading through that uh, intake paper on Ancestry. I thought, what a, yeah. I don't know if we've come across that occupation very often yeah, when yeah. we look at other inmates here. Yeah, we talk about like Blue Eagle, uh, who right? came to the chapel, but do you know more about his background, like where he came from? Or? He was from England, England supposedly. Yeah. Family came and immigrated here. Okay. And we talk about how, you know, so many of our inmates here were from so many different countries, you know. Happily, they or they and their families immigrated to America, and then sadly, when they came west, ended up committing a crime and spending some time here. It didn't indicate if he had any siblings, just a mother and a father. And we know how so many times that mother-son relationship is pretty tight and intense, and for her to come and almost beg for his release and just thinking that he's going to be okay and he's really a good person deep down. You know, that thought of a mother is still always looking for the best in her children, Yeah. right? How much of this did he share with his parents about what he was kind of accused of or, you know, thought of in the community? Obviously, the people in uh, the Haley's Ketchum area were pretty sure that he had done it, and so I'm sure he didn't, you know, lived there very long without a, a good reputation. Yeah, His reputation yeah. was probably tainted very, very much from that incident. And who knows, maybe he really did murder Mr. Morris on his journey from Haley to catch him that night. Guess we'll never know. That's all I have to say, and I just, uh, thanks for the time. I love telling these stories. I love reading about these people and 
researching and finding lots of great information, stories, and tidbits that we didn't know before. Yeah. Thanks yeah. to digitized newspapers, right? right. Yeah, Woohoo! Absolutely. Yeah, there's just something fascinating about researching all of these stories and being in the place where they occurred. Mm-hmm. Like to be in the 1890s cell house, even though the cells are stripped out of there, you can right. still see that doorway that goes to the passage to the stairs. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where this happened. Right. And, and we are right here and we work amongst it, which is just, you know, amazing. And right. I wonder if there's any bloodstains up there. Oh, my gosh. I wonder if he supposedly left a trail of blood along the third story up there and and eventually just kind of bled out. Hmm. Well, maybe it's worth a trip up the ladder, Anthony. Oh, no, thank you. (laughs) All right, Suzanne. Thank you. Yeah, if I were to say do your own time, how would you respond to that? Do your own crime? There you go. All right. Did I get it? No. Oh, man. I'm going to learn it someday. I'm going to remember how to respond to that. Okay? That's a good one, though. I Tell like me, it. It rhymes. What is it? Do your own crime. Do your time. Okay. Do your own number. Do your own number. Do your own number. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank goodness I wasn't near number 128. Oh, yeah. Oh, All right? Yeah. All right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll be back with you soon. Bye.